I have only two gentlemen on the hot seat here. I need more people on the hot seat. There's another one. Come up for the hot seat. So while the other men are coming up, nobody wants to hold the mic here. <laughs> I do have to say there is an abundance of questions. So we're, we're not at a shortage of questions. If you look at all of these, this is a, a lot of questions. There is no possible way that we will get through all of these. So thank you so much for all the many questions. It is my very hard job here to rein in the questions and maybe rein in some of the answers here. Uh, I will try to keep you, because there are so many questions, to try to keep your questions very concise. Um, maybe one minute, two minutes. Uh, we'll, we'll see where this goes. Okay. Uh, but thank you so much for, for coming here. Uh, these questions are many. They are good. A lot of very practical type of questions. So let's see where we go. We'll, we'll start here. Um, some have the uh, very common themes. I was not able to organize them all thematically. So let's start with, with the first one here. Are we, are we waiting on more? Are we waiting on, on Paul and start? Okay, the others will join us. Yeah, we'll save, we'll save the hard ones for the, for the latecomers. <laughs> the first one says this, Are the promises of God eligible to me if my sufferings are due to my own follies in sins? So are the promises of God eligible, el eligible to me if my sufferings are due to my own follies and sins? Ah. Uh. Yes, <laughs> the promises of God, <laughs> there we go, are we good? No, the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. They are there for us to grasp hold of by faith, to depend on, to cling to. I don't know what else you do have in that situation than the promises of God. Good, maybe closely related to that. How do you cope with suffering that is a direct result of our own sin? We often talk about people like Job who suffered but was yet faithful. What, um, God, when we suffer due to our, but what about when we suffer due to our own unfaithfulness? That was for Paul. I Paul, as the latecomer. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And I would say when we do suffer as a result of our own sin, one of the clearest promises that God has given us is in 1 John that, that uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What a promise. And we can stand upon that promise. And, uh, and, and, and because of our disobedience, it does not mean that God doesn't still have the same design and desire uh, to achieve in our lives through our suffering. He is still at work in our lives to conform us 
into the image and likeness of his son. So you can rest assured that that's exactly what he's doing, even in the instances of suffering uh, through our own disobedience or unwise choices. Hmm. Very good. Um, here's, here's a very relevant one. How do you comfort a believer who has lost an unsaved loved one while still acknowledging the truth of eternal damnation? Uh, verses maybe even also that come to mind as well. The pain of losing a loved one who you cannot even have almost a grain of hope that they're saved is inexpressible. Jonathan Edwards actually addressed this question and he said, on the day of judgment, you'll be so filled with the glory of God, also the glory of his justice, that you will say amen to this with all your heart, even if you see your loved ones go lost. That's an awesome thought. But what he's saying is <clears throat> that your relationship with God will be so superlative, so ultimate, so, so all-encompassing, and you're sense of the glory of God would be so all-dominating that that objection, which we feel so painfully here, will just fall away and will enter into the joy of the Lord and live for only His glory. And any scriptural references to add to that? So I'm just testing your, your Bible knowledge. Of, no. When my father phoned me to tell me my mother had died very suddenly, um, I wasn't sure in what state my mother died. She was a wonderful mother. And as I drove up to Glasgow, um, almost blinded with my tears, the text that just kept running through my mind and heart was, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And resting in the sheer not just justice of God, but in the perfections of His goodness is what brought wonderful comfort to my heart. Okay. One of the things that I think is very helpful, though it is very hard, is when we look at Romans chapter 1. When we look at radical depravity, we have to understand that every human being that we see on this planet, even a Hitler, is still somehow restrained by the power and the grace of God. When we see people who do daily activities, noble things, heroic things, we, we've got to understand that what we're seeing is a manifestation of God's restraining grace and power on the day of judgment that will be removed. And what you will see is that person, apart from any restraining influence of God or any grace. Another thing you have to realize is that in hell, we always assume that, well, it's eternal because God's uh, glory is infinite. But you also be careful that you're not assuming that people in hell are repentant. They hate the light more than they've ever hated it. And there is an argument to be made that if Christ himself were to go down to the gates of hell and throw them open, 
that all of hell would run to the gates and slam it shut and say we'd rather rot in hell than stand in your light. And so we need to be very, we need to grab a hold of what radical depravity, what humanity actually is, because we never see it here on this earth. Even in the vilest person, there is still something restraining. So everything I love about an individual is authored, in a sense, by even the God that they refuse to believe in. And so be very careful of our high view of man. Good. Thank you. Uh, these, these two are, are related uh, to some degree. And it says, um, in the lonely uh, hour of suffering, where it seems that God has withdrawn his face from me, how do I press on in faith and suffer in such a way as to shield my wife and my, and my children from my suffering? And then another related question, as parents, how should we handle the sufferings of our children? So, uh, first part, um, can, we, can we guard our children from suffering? And then the second part, how do we handle the sufferings of our children? It's just incredibly difficult uh, when you watch, incredibly difficult when you watch your, your children suffer and, you know, I was, I was teaching on this earlier today, and even the distinction between tipping your hat to sin, winking at sin in your life, and, and, and agreeing more to the suffering of your own children than to sin. And yet it doesn't make it easy at all, the, the difficulty of that. The shielding is an interesting question. The shielding of suffering, uh, because your children will see you go through that. You mentioned that earlier, and there's, there's, they see that suffering that you go through and how you suffer and how much you're learning through your suffering and the searching afflictions. And so there should be those elements of preparation, of pursuing Christ in the midst of suffering, of running to Christ as the fountain of all mercy, and and yet teaching your children in this aspect of how to suffer well. It's still hard. Hmm. It's still hard. Good. Anything to add? Yeah. Um, if I could just be personal. Again, um, th there has been times, and I've shared with you all about our, our daughter, who's doing really well now, but in the earlier years of her life, uh, she was about maybe four or five when she had her first seizure. And some of you parents maybe have uh, children who have seizures. And when you first see that, there's nothing that can, can uh, prepare you for that. And I just remember watching her seize. And this one was a, it wasn't a grand mall, but it, it, it went for a long time. And it seemed like an eternity. It may have been about two and a half minutes or so, but it just seemed like an eternity. And I just, re I just remember that when the seizure was over, she just went limp. Um, and her eyes rolled in the back of her head. And I just remember begging God not to take her. Just begging God, please don't take her. But as she came to, just wrestling, 
with what I knew to be true about God. That he made my daughter for his own glory. Um, and we wanted her. We, we did not want to see her suffer, but we had to get to the place where we released our daughter into the hands of her creator who loves her more than we can imagine. And it's as hard as parents to watch your children suffer. But God knows that we have to trust him not only with our own suffering, but with the suffering that he might bring into their lives. There's something in the book of Job that I just had never really paid much attention to. And as the book of Job starts, it says that part of Job's blamelessness is that he prayed regularly for his children. If perchance they may have sinned, right, he, he, was a, he was a man who did what a father is supposed to do in family worship. Lift your children up before the throne of God. And yet God in his infinite wisdom took Job's children from him in dramatic fashion. And so our children's well-being is not promised to us. And we have to trust God who does all things well. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Uh, I've become convinced in preaching some of the gospel stories that one of the big reasons among others that God gives us children is so that we have our faith matured. We become much less selfish right, through having children. But we also, any parent, any parent will suffer more than the child is suffering when the child suffers because you feel it so deeply. So if you look at the Canaanitish woman, you know, she comes, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. You look at the father of the demoniac at Mark 9, he comes and says, if, if, if you can help at all, Lord, please help. What does Jesus do? He deals with the mother first and the daughter's sideline. Then he deals with the father first and the son is sideline. So what's he doing? He's maturing their faith. He even says to the Canaanite woman after he tries her in three successive levels, and she responds just wonderfully to all three, he says, O woman, great or mature is thy faith. So is it not true that one of the greatest reasons God gives us children is not only to raise them for him, of course that's supreme, but... He also wants to mature our faith. And so all the same things that apply to our suffering, that God matures us through suffering, well, it applies equally well to our children's suffering. He matures. Uh, this man sitting next to me right now, I, I, I firmly believe I can heal it, I can feel it. He's a much more mature Christian because of the suffering of his, his daughter. So God uses our children to grow us through their suffering. In the world, um, authority brings privilege. In the kingdom of heaven, authority requires sacrifice without privilege. If you're a man, you're an authority in your family. You are called upon to bear burdens that your wife is not called upon to bear, and your children most certainly are not called upon to bear. And sometimes the men of this age just need to hear that they need to man up and quit laying burdens and fears and worries 
on their wife and children that they were never called to sustain. This is an extremely important truth. Women desire security, someone they can trust, and someone who will lay down their life for them. Children need similar things. Men, above all things, from their wives, desire respect. That respect requires that you be the man who carries the burden. If the enemy's in the front, you stand in the front. If he's on the side, you stand in the side. If he's in the back, you stand in the back. And you bear things that at times you share with no one because they were not meant to carry them. You were. You want that position of authority? You want to be the man? Then you have to play the man. Very good, very good. Um, next question, interesting one. Uh, is it common or normal to feel like your suffering isn't the same as New Testament believers as they experienced and to feel like your life is too good and thus doubt your salvation? So comparing our lives to New Testament believers. Well, I can give you some of my suffering if you'd like. <laughs> I think comparing yourself to people in Scripture is actually, in general, a good thing as a point of reference. Um, we have these models. Sometimes they even say, you know, Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? And, and so you have to have a comparison. You're supposed to see yourself. There is a kind of mirror here for you to see and to understand what it is to be in covenant with God, to walk with God, to commune with God, and to suffer faithfully. On the other hand, we need to be very thoughtful, I think, about how little we are told of their lives. Even those, you know, who are major characters in the Bible, sometimes, you know, we might get at most 25 chapters on a patriarch, right? And that's such a little window into their life that if we see them just in snapshots at these moments of their life, we've, we get these lessons, we get these models, these paradigms even for us to think through all of the mundane things. And we get glimpses into the mundane in their life through Scripture. But they weren't immune from all of the things. Remember, all of those temptations are common are common. Common to you, common to them. There's nothing that's come upon you that's not common to people, to them, to you, to others. And so don't belittle yourself because you say, oh, I just have a mundane life and, and I'm looking at these people and they suffered greatly and thus they were, they were more glorious in the example they lived or something like that. No, how you're prepared for those times, if God should ever put you in a place that's... that's um, somehow in your own eyes much more significant is in how you've suffered the mundane daily. And that's how they were prepared as well, by learning to honor Christ the Lord in their hearts as holy on a day-by-day -day basis. So that then when their faith shines through in some more brilliant and obvious and, and uh, explicit way, 
that wasn't there just in that moment. It came through the mundane. Yeah, Rabbi John Duncan once said that some believers, they're a minority, certainly they're a minority today, have an overly scrupulous conscience. And if you're feeling guilty because you're not in a time of great suffering, uh, you really ought to just rest in the Lord and thank Him that you have a little respite for a little while from suffering and leave the degree of suffering to the Lord. And uh, I, I can honestly say right now in my life, I don't have the kinds of overwhelming sufferings I live with so long, and I am grateful every day. But I know very well it can start up tomorrow in some other area. So enjoy those times as long as you're not backsliding. If you're backsliding, well, that's different. But enjoy those times of closeness with the Lord when there's not intense suffering. God hasn't made us to always be in intense suffering. I mean, maybe rare believers, but he gives us reprieves, ebbs and flowings. And when you, we, we need to learn to be grateful, actually, for both. But leave it up to him how much suffering you have to go through. Okay, I'm going to add one related to this. Uh, this question says, Since suffering is God's school of affliction for his own beloved, how should we be praying for the suffering of our brothers? And then, that's part A, and then part B, should it be different from how we pray for our own suffering? So how do we pray for the suffering of our brothers, uh, perhaps those who are persecuted, and how is that different from how we pray for our own suffering? I've always found it r remarkably striking that when Paul is writing to churches that are living out the life of faith, kingdom life, in a hostile, pagan, persecuting environment, his, his great concern is that they grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Paul writes to the church in Ephesians, for example, and he tells them he prays for them, but what is it he prays for them? Not first that they will be preserved, protected, um, excused the, the pains, the struggles, the sufferings. He, he prays that they will come to know God better, that they will know um, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and the exceeding greatness of his power uh, in them or towards them who believe. And I do think that the greatest thing we can pray for our brothers and sisters who are in the front line of suffering, although every believer suffers, I think we must be careful we don't identify suffering with the physical. Um, it can come in all various forms. It, it, it can come in lives that are often tranquil, uh, the lines have fallen for them in pleasant places outwardly, but inwardly there are anguishes and struggles and trials. But I think that the, the best thing we can pray for our brothers and sisters is that they will so come to know God more richly, more deeply, more profoundly, more wonderfully, and discover how exceedingly glorious their Savior is so that in the midst of the trials and troubles, 
like Joseph, rather than recant, relent, turn back, they will say, how could I do such a thing and sin against this great, glorious, majestic, loving God who in Jesus Christ has saved me from hell, made me his child, and will one day bring me into his glory. So, um, that's, I think, where we start. It's not where we end, but I think that is where we start. But you have got more experience of that than I've ever had. I think sometimes that we can, like, so take um, a family that I know right now that's imprisoned and the mother's being tortured. If it was your daughter, your mother, and she is, the one who does the will of God is my father and my mother and my sister and my brother and my son and my daughter. So in the context, first of all, the context must be everything my brother said. We know God is working for good in their life. We want to pray that their faith is sustained, that they represent Christ. And all these things that are so true. And we remember those in chains. And we do anything to rescue them. And we cry out for that. And yet at the same time, we rest in God and his wisdom. Amen. How would you, um, how would you counsel someone, somebody, who still holds deep regret for suffering endured as a result of a decision that seemed like a godly one when the decision was made? That's the question. But I'm going to add also if it seemed like an ungodly one when the decision was made. Um, so how do you counsel somebody uh, who's who? regrets this, uh, suffering ensues, uh, perhaps the decision was a godly one, perhaps it was an ungodly one at the time. How do you counsel that particular person? I'm thinking in your mind scenario, you can think of, um, you know, for example, abortion as, a, as, a, as an ungodly decision. Somebody suffers from that. How do you, how do you bring counsel to that person, perhaps an ungodly one, or you can think of a godly scenario as well. Well, my mind goes immediately to the text in Joel that says, the Lord knows how to restore the years the locusts have eaten. We can be at points, even as believers in our lives, where we make decisions that we thought were right but proved to be detrimental and we grieve over it and it impacts our lives for a considerable period of time. And we repent, we cry out for mercy, but we also believe that God in his amazing forgiving grace allows those very foolish decisions to boomerang back in a way in which they're laced and soaked in the blood of Christ so that we actually are matured through repenting and receiving God's forgiveness, and then we are more grateful 
for his benediction in our lives than we ever would have been if this had not happened. So I'm thinking right now of, of Simon Peter. He went out and wept bitterly. And uh, so many times the, the, the tradition is that whenever he heard the cock crew, he, he wept. He still remembered his sin. But he was able to reach the poor little sheep, feed my little sheep, feed my medium sheep, feed my mature sheep, basically is what Jesus is saying. Peter, I can trust you with all my sheep now that you've been broken, broken by your own foolishness, your own sin. And when, when we've been broken and restored, um, we are not to, to just keep hanging on. Yes, we will still grieve over our sins. Yes, there'll be scar marks in our lives. But we know we're forgiven in Christ. And God will restore the years the locusts have eaten. And we'll be all the more grateful for the gospel than we ever would have been if this hadn't happened. That's how I would counsel them. Part of my job here as moderator is to try to make the men squirm up, up here. So this is a, perhaps a curveball of a question. We'll see if you squirm. I'm not sure. Uh, perhaps this is related to suffering. What should godly women do when there is no godly men within a 50-mile radius? Are they squirming? Move. <laughs> Move. <laughs> put your, you put yourself you put yourself in the way. In the way. There are singles conferences that are all around the country. They they're not designed to just have matchmaking sessions. They're really good talks. And um, you, 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 you put yourself in, in the way of the means, and you, and you keep praying. You keep praying. Uh, God, God can bring that godly man to you. And sometimes when you, uh, when you think there's no one left, God knows there's, there is someone left. Our son, we, we advised our son, you know, try to, try to marry someone that's of similar beliefs as we. And uh, he said to me one day, he said, Dad, I've checked out every girl in the whole denomination, and there's no one for me. <laughs> and two weeks later, he's at a youth camp, and a girl walks by, and he goes, who's that? <laughs> and that was it. And she was from our denomination. He just didn't know about her. So be informed, and maybe, maybe consult a few people who, who are well-traveled, who know of different singles in different areas that are really looking for godly spouses. There really are a lot of you, a lot more of you than, than you realize. Um, try to use the means to, 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 to get in the way where there would be possibilities. I believe that in Isaiah 3, it is very clear that when God's judgment falls on a nation, he says, I will remove your noble men. Little boys will rule over them and women will rule over them. We're in a time of judgment, and this at least can be applied in part. But what I would tell young ladies is pray for your husband. And now your response may be, I am praying for a husband. That's not what I said. When my little boys were about five years old, I sat down with them, and I said, there's a good chance that your wife has been born. She's already there. 
Now, she's going to, maybe you won't meet her, in my oldest son's case, you won't meet her for another 16 years. She's going to need to be trained. She's going to need to mature. She's going to need to be godly. I want you boys not praying for a wife, praying for your wife, that her parents would raise her. And so, young ladies, are you praying for your husband? You, you want a man. You want someone who's strong. You want someone who's loved for Christ. Go into the Bible. Pick out every virtue that belongs to a man that you would esteem. Every virtue that belongs to a husband. And get on your knees and pray that these qualities, these characteristics would be in him. And that God would bring him to you at the appropriate time. For most of you, you will marry, the great majority. So that means your husband is already alive. You should be praying for him as though you were married. And you should be chaste as though you were married. You, you, you have, it's like a, a, a girl comes to a, a young man in a gym and says, why are you, you know, all the other guys, they've got their shirts off and everything and you wear long sleeve shirts and why? And he goes, well, my body belongs to God and it belongs to my wife. And she says, oh, I, I didn't know you were married. I'm not, but I will be. She's somewhere there and I'm saving myself for her. So act as though you already are his woman and, she's, and he's your man. And pray for him now as you would if you were already wed. Bruce, I saw you reaching for the... You good? Okay. Well, yeah, I was, I was just going to say that, that um, I think we need to, to balance that. that nothing, this is not against that. Because I'm following what he just said, it's going to sound like I'm saying something against, and I don't mean to, for it to come off that way. But, you know, we've been talking about suffering. If this is a form of suffering... That suffering, uh, you know, one of the themes, it's not been said just, the way, just this way, but is that, you know, maybe the greatest tragedy of suffering is when you suffer and it's wasted. When you, when you suffer and you respond to it, not in a godly way, not in a way that, that works towards your sanctification, not in a way that, that is, is consistent with finding your comfort in Christ so that you might be able to comfort others in Christ and so on. Well, maybe there's something for this person to be working through in their current context. You know, moving is, is maybe the thing, but maybe there's something that God is doing in this affliction in that person's soul, and maybe they're not even called to be married. But maybe it's only when they work through to that place of contentment with not being married that they might be spiritually ready to be married. And I'm just thinking about what Ian Hamilton was saying about trying to discern the providence of God. We, we don't know what God is up to. And I think sometimes we need to be careful not to be presumptuous in that way as well. So We, we have just published a 40-page booklet for those of you who are singles called... <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> it's not a joke. It's not a joke. He's very serious when it comes to publishing. <laughs> I'm a book guy, yeah. But, but, but 
We've, we've, looked at, we've looked at nine different angles of singleness and given, ad, given advice. Uh, and I've, I've, actually, I've actually written to some singles and asked them to read it ahead of time uh, because it can be painful as well. And, and maybe people who are married can't write out of the womb of that pain. And so we actually took some of the pain of singleness as well from those writers and put it in the booklet as well. I think you'll actually find it very helpful. How can I live my single life to the glory of God. Uh, yeah, two dollars. <laughs> oh, very good. All right, another one. We have to move on. We're having too much fun. Acknowledging that the, that the doctrine of sovereignty is vitally important to the believer and preaching, is there ever a way in which it can be overemphasized and what does that look like? I think it's a really good question, and I think the answer to that is yes. I think it could be overemphasized to the extent that it is uh, preached or taught or emphasized in such a way that it, that it makes us think that we're not responsible for our own choices. That because God is sovereign and he ordains whatsoever shall come to pass that, well, we might as well do whatever because God has already ordained it to be. So we don't have to follow any of his prescripts. We don't have to seek his wisdom. We could just do whatever because God knew that I was going to do it. He ordained it to do it. That would be a wrong way of understanding the sovereignty of God. Uh, the sovereignty of God does not cancel the responsibility of man and the accountability of man, that God holds us both responsible and accountable for everything that we do. So those two tracks run parallel to one another and so we have to hold those in tension because they both are true so if you're understanding sovereignty to mean that you're not responsible then you're understanding sovereignty in the wrong way and it could be very harmful uh, to your growth in in your walk with the lord jesus uh, for me the uh, idea of sovereignty actually gives me motivation um it's kind of like in missions that i know the mission will be accomplished uh you know i think of i think of david brainerd and uh, in his well-known journal, in his diary, you know, he has this statement, um, this prayer, oh, may I never loiter in my heavenly journey. And here you had, you had a reformed, he believed in the high view of God's sovereignty as a missionary, and yet every moment was motivated by that, that sovereignty of God. It was a motivation for him to keep going because he knew the mission would be accomplished. Of course, he died at a very young age, at age of 29. Um, but I think there's something to that that gives me great motivation in pressing forward with that responsibility. Uh, and we see that pretty much throughout church history, uh, of course. But, um, yeah, but you can get to a point where it's a hyper-Calvinist kind of thing where you just don't do anything. Well, God's going to take care of it. I had a, there, was a, there was actually someone in a church... Uh, that was not treating his wife well. Uh, he was addicted to pornography also. And he says, well, I'm not going to quit until God makes me. Because he was thinking, well, God is so sovereign that if he wanted me to quit, he would just, he would just you know, allow me not to look or steer me away from pornography or something. And this is the opposite of this idea of the call of faithfulness, of godliness, of pursuing. You know, we are to work for God who is at every moment, I think Watson said, working for us. One, one more important thing here real quickly. 
is it's not a 50-50 deal between sovereignty and responsibility. So I, I like to flip it inside out and say, it's not so much of a problem of making too much of God's sovereignty because he's 100% sovereign. It's, it's not making enough of man's responsibility because you're 100% responsible. So it's a 100-100 deal. And uh, don't, don't, don't think of it, well, I'm going to make it idle out of God's sovereignty. No, the only way you can do that is by ignoring man's responsibility. So you, you, you both. Spurgeon said when someone came to him and said, what, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? He said, I, I didn't know that friends needed reconciliation. They're already reconciled in the mind of God. In the Bible, there's no tension between them. Did you know that? John 6, 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, pure sovereignty. In him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out pure responsibility with no tension. Hmm. I think it goes beyond even divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Um, I think you find the Bible is... I'll use the language, but you'll have to understand why I'm using it. The Bible's less precise than we would like it to be. Our brother quoted Isaiah 63, and all their afflictions, he was afflicted. The danger is you can preach that text and say, now let me tell you what it doesn't mean, because God is impassable. And then you get into this discussion on passability and impassability. Is he passably impassable or is he impassably passable? Preach the text. Preach the text. When it says God so loved the world, don't spend half the time telling people what the world doesn't mean. Amen. Preach the text. Preach the text. And if people don't understand you or misunderstand you, well, they need to read their Bibles better. Thank you, brother. This is a relatively longer one, um, but I think an important one. As a relatively new believer, I am discovering that the sufferings of my past are too great for me to handle. But, to, but due to the great pain of them, I struggle giving them over to Christ. Unfortunately, as a child, I suffered many forms of abuse, sexual, mental, or physical. How do I understand, how do I explain this kind of suffering? especially in, in my childhood, mainly uh, dealing with the consequences of, of trauma. Please keep me in your prayers. He'll be the only one that sets me free. So how, do you, how does uh, this person deal with past uh, trauma and suffering, especially as a new believer, struggling to hand that over to, to Christ? First of all, this is, we could all become quickly with our answers, Job's friends right now. We could respond to that question with answers that even though would have truth in them would seem so trite. This is a, a very pastoral question that requires a deep relationship um, and, and conversation. But one thing that we need to, I think, understand, at least not me, I, I couldn't even begin to identify with what you've gone through, but the tiny minimum, just minuscule, 
compared to you that I have gone through, I realize that in some ways there will never be healing complete until I walk through the door and see the only one in heaven who will bear scars. And, and that causes in me a longing for, for heaven. Sins that I can never go back and fix will be healed that when I look in his face. Things and hurts and problems. But, but here's the thing. If you, if those things make you cry, the important thing is where you cry. Don't allow those things to make you feel dirty and unwanted so that you go, you run as far away from him as you can and you cry in the dark all alone but rather the reverse. Cry. You may cry for the rest of your life periodically for things that never seem to heal, but just make sure that you've run to him and you've jumped in his arms and that's where you cry. And it's, it's for people who've, who've, who've been abused, but also for people who have sinned. I have seen so many people believe the lies of the devil that when they sin or something happens to them, they cry, but they run away from him and cry alone instead of running to him and, 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 and throw themselves upon him. Uh, for this question, I can only pray that you have godly pastors and pastor's wives, maybe, and, and, and others who could truly sit down with you over a long period of time and, and get to know everything that you're going through and help you work through these problems. There is healing, and there's probably more healing than all of us realize, yet at the same time, what is not healed is like an eschatological goad to cause us to look for that day when the trumpet sounds and we're healed. And I would just say yes and amen to everything that Brother Paul said. Um, and to underscore it just with these words that have brought comfort to my own soul when I've wrestled with similar doubts, um, where Jesus just says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he stands, even tonight, right in this moment, with his arms stretched wide to each and every one of us to come. That he delights, as Brother Paul said, he delights to put his mercy on display for those for whom he died. So run to him right now. And would it be appropriate for us just to pray for our dear? Is it a brother or sister? Do we know? I didn't say. Let's pray if we can. Father, you know of our, our dear brother or sister, and maybe even many others who right now 
share similar burdens and pains of past trauma and harm that was done to them, sins, egregious sins that were perpetrated against them. And they are struggling to come to you right now and to hand those burdens to you, Father. We just pray that you would draw near to them in, in mercy and grace and comfort. The light of your continents break through the darkness of their souls. Remind them that you love them with an everlasting love, that they might cast their burdens upon you. So we offer them to you now, Lord God, and pray your blessings upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, well, another one. Um, if I struggle with particular sins, and perhaps repeatedly, does, does that disqualif disqualify me for ministry? Not in itself, but it's possible. It depends on how you're struggling with those sins and even what those sins may be. Um, it's very, very important that one who is heading into the ministry has a, is not mastered by sin. Um, they name their sins. They confess their sins. They fight the good fight against their sins. They're ruthless. They give no quarter to these things. And that they're not named by their sins. But that doesn't mean, of course, that you're free from the continual, perpetual, daily grind of fighting against sin all your days. And there's always, you know, if you say, well, my sin is pride, well, that's going to be with you all your days. Because there's always a little bit deeper root that needs to be pulled up. And so if that's what you have in mind, then you're never going to be free. <laughs> but you're going to have plenty to be working on the rest of your days. And that's true with, with all of these. Now, particular sin can be the kind of thing that is disqualifying if it's the theme and the pattern of your life such that it's naming you and not something that you're naming and repenting of. Somebody else wants to. That was great. That was a great answer. Okay. Okay, we might be... Needing another curveball, I think. It's about that time, right? If we are to imitate Christ as we walk through dark, even demonic suffering, and if Christ rebuked demons who then fled, then are we ever to rebuke demons when confronted by them or when seen in others? Or... Do we only ever take these matters to God as we address him in prayer, recognizing that he is sovereign over even demons? There's silence. I think that as far as I can discern on this, that the last, I think it was in the last clause, was, was getting 
closer to where we need to be on this. We need to recognize that, um, you know, do I know how to discern a demon? Do I recognize one if I see one? <laughs> um, I think, what, what, how, say the very last line of that again. I want to pick up that language. Or do we only ever take these matters to God as we address him in prayer, recognizing that he is sovereign over even demons? I think that's the right track, generally speaking. So never rebuking demons. Yeah, that would not be my advice. Does anybody else want to weigh in? Yeah, I don't think we find in the New Testament believers ever being exhorted to rebuke demons and or do we see it practice. Um, the Bible squarely tells us as New Testament believers to resist the devil and he will flee. Um, Paul writes in Ephesians 6 that uh, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers, against war forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So the Bible clearly says that we are engaged in a cosmic battle and there is spiritual warfare, no doubt. But then Paul goes on to describe that we are called to put on the full armor of God and to take our stand in who Christ is and in his power. And uh, I don't think that means uh, rebuking demons. So did Luther get it wrong when he said, when he felt terribly tempted by Satan, Satan, you've come to the wrong address. My head's in heaven. You've got to go to him because he's my head, and you can't get at him because he's exalted at the right hand of the Father. That's not exorcism. But there is a sense, I think, in, in, in urgent, overwhelming need that we can say, Satan, I defy you with the word of God. I, this is the promise. In, Be gone, Satan. And the Lord has told me in Romans 6, 11, that um, I am no longer to be ruled by sin. I have nothing to do with you. Be gone. Um, have you never talked that way to the Lord? <laughs> I have, but I, if that's wrong, correct me. I leaned over to my dear brother here, and I said, I don't think it is wise to open up a can that we can't close. There is so much that is taught about Demons and things like that in America, that's absolutely absurd. It's blasphemous. Um, it seems that a lot of talk about demons is generated by the demonic. And yet out on the mission field and in many places, mm -hmm. there are things that, that are beyond terrifying that do not fall into to all these categories that are they're beyond depravity and um, many godly men of even the reformed tradition have had to deal with it it is there is need for precision there is need for fear and there is need to stay away from great extremes but there is the reality of the satanic and the demonic. And um, we fight a supernatural battle. 
I would challenge everyone to study this matter, but with the greatest caution, and yet at the same time know that this, um, the spiritual reality of everything is, is far greater than, than what you see. Whether we're talking about Plato's cave and the shadow on the wall, the spiritual reality is greater than, than what you see with your own eyes. I have known reformed men who walked with God for 50 and six men on the mission field. I myself having to deal with certain things that, that were beyond sometimes the categories of seminary and requiring great deal of prayer, of fasting, of trepidation, of trusting in the Lord. What I am scared, that does bother me is the denial. But the other thing is, is that even the way that that's worded uh, demonstrates that, no, 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 don't deal with this as demonic if, if you're going to write that way. Um, like I said, I, I don't want to get into a, a thing here, but um, maybe my elder brothers, there, there is the demonic. There is an evil beyond that of human depravity. And, and sometimes it is, it is manifested. And great prayer, great fear um, is required. Great trust in the Lord. Um, I, I don't know if anything else should be said. One thing, I mean, to, to add, I, I spoke from Ephesians uh, 1, 15 to 23, and in that context, uh, Paul is praying for the opening of the eyes of the Ephesian church uh, for knowing the supremacy of Christ over all things. And there, there's a reference to even uh, any power or might or dominion, uh, these are references to demonic, even demonic powers, uh, so that Christ has that, that authority even over all demonic forces. So yes, they are at work, uh, but the power of Christ, the risen Christ, the resurrected Christ, is um, far greater than that. So that is our comfort and, and hope. But the problem isn't with Christ. No. The problem is with the men of God and their inability to recognize certain things. And um, you're, you're right. And like I said, I don't, I don't want to open up a can that I can't close, but I, I will tell you that um, just because there's all these extremes out there that borderline on abomination dealing with the idea of the demonic and everything else does not mean that there's not a real demonic opposition and warfare that sometimes takes hold in the lives of individuals. And cautiously and carefully, it must be dealt with with the word, with prayer, um, and with, like I said, not an unhealthy trepidation, but a realization that there is a devil who is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And um, in many cultures, in many places, and in many ways, takes hold of an individual 
in, in a terrifying manner. Chris, how long do we have to go till? I don't know. I have enough questions to pepper these guys for a long time. Okay. Just maybe say one, one example of, of Bunyan here is really, really powerful. You know, Satan is over him, and Bunyan experienced that himself, like ready to give the final blow, and Christian reaches out and grabs hold of the sword of the word of God, right? And just with one thrust, Satan is gone. So, yeah, like you said, resist the devil with the sword of the word of God. I think that's the safe, safe route to go and the biblical route to go. Thank you. We're moving on from that curveball. When talking to unbelievers, one of the most common reasons for rejecting Christ is natural suffering through mass deaths from hurricanes, diseases, famine, etc. Uh, they claim that this type of suffering shows a God who is not benevolent. Best responses? So a common reason for rejecting Christ is natural suffering. Yeah, there, there are a, a whole host of responses for this. So you can sign up for my apologetics course and we go into the problem of evil. Uh, there's an underlying assumption in this that the suffering of humans is undeserved and unjust. And that, I think, needs to be challenged. Um, that's not the proper starting point. That's not the biblical starting point for assessing these things. Without sin, no suffering. And so we have to put it in the right context as far as that goes. And that would just be sort of the beginning of, of the discussion. You know, that's also assuming that the atheist doesn't have to give an answer for that too. You know, it's, uh, it's always put into our court to give an answer, which is fine. And we, we want to do that. We want to give a coherent, consistent worldview that's from Scripture that deals with origins and meaning, morality, and destiny. Um, but we're also, there's also this assumption that that onus is on us, that we, that we are the only ones giving that. Well, we can. We're the only ones that can give that answer. Um, but they don't want to give this kind of same kind of you know, consistent, coherent worldview, because then it's just nothing. You know, Sam Harris and Dawkins and others have said that, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, uh, there is no rhyme or reason to it, to the suffering. It's just pure chance. Someone's, you know, as Dawkins says, someone's going to get lucky, someone's not. You know, there's no purpose behind it. There's no reason for your suffering. There's nothing more, there's no more meaning to this than just what you see. Too bad. That's were the best we got. Were you reaching for... No, you were not reaching for the mic? No, okay. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not have anything different to add other than the... You think about Jesus as he's walking with his disciples and they're confronted with tragedy of, you know, the Tower of Siloam falling and, and, and people being crushed and there being death and... And Jesus just says, unless you repent, something greater is going to happen to you. Jesus doesn't try to give an answer about the suffering, but he, he squarely says that, that unless you repent. So the calling is to the individual. You acknowledge the suffering. It says that, that unless you repent, 
something's worse is going to happen to you. And I think it's a reminder of what Paul does in Romans 1 before, in Romans 1 and 2 before he gets to the good news in chapter 3. He just argues, I mean, systematically about the depravity of man, that, that man knows that God exists and that he suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. And so the, 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 to put up the obstacle like, okay, I see the suffering, therefore I can't trust in God, it's just arrogance. And I'm not saying that we don't do apologetics, but, but, but Paul would squarely put that in just, just arrogance of suppressing the truth of God in ungodliness and in unrighteousness because that which is known about God has been made evident to them. They know that God exists and they're going to use every excuse they can to suppress that knowledge and that, and that suppression has to be confronted with the gospel itself. Okay, I think we have time for one more here. Um, what does Christian grief, sorrow look like when suffering the loss of believing friends, family, loved ones. It continues, Is it sin to wish or want for the loss to not have occurred? How can we grieve as Christ might have grieved? And then a, a note, our pastor, 45, has stage 4 colon cancer. A word here would be greatly appreciated. So is it sin to wish or to want for this loss? or grief to not have occurred. How can we grieve as Christ might have? Well, if the death has occurred, our calling is humbly to bow before the wisdom, the loving kindness of the Lord. Um, Everything, the, the older I get, although I hope it's not just due to age, I hope it's due to other things, more and more I, I think the whole of life and all of the questions that life raises um, is predicated on your doctrine of God, who you have come to know and understand and, and that's why, over the past couple of years, I, I've often pondered and reflected on Psalm 119, verse 68. Uh, because you are good, you do good. Um, because God is who he is, everything he does natively, instinctively, is good. And that doesn't mean we don't grieve, we don't sorrow, we don't weep, we don't break our hearts because that's part of what it is to be human. When the Lord Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, um, he, he blazed with anger. You know, our English translations are very prosaic. Embrimalmai, it's, it's, a, it's a word that's hard to convey in terms of the the sheer pain and anguish and anger that the Lord experienced. And we should never try to smooth out um, our humanity, uh, giving a kind of false sense of, um, uh, of almost a docetic view of humanity, humanity that isn't 
uh, radically deeply affected by, by grief. But undergirding that, uh, the grief needs to be taken to the Lord. Uh, and we weep, we break our hearts, but we submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. Our comportment or our behavior becomes so free, so free, when we establish two things. First of all, the absolute goodness and wisdom of God. His goodness, which would include his love, his wisdom, his omniscience, and then his absolute sovereignty. In my mind, when I establish those two things as, as anchors, as rocks, then now I have the freedom to be as a child before him. So if I were to hear the news today, this evening, that my wife was struck, I would have, first of all, the rock of the goodness of God and the absolute wisdom of God. But, with, but on top of that rock, I can say, Lord, I'm so sad you took her. I hurt so bad. I miss her so much. But it's always in the context of that. And this is what the Lord was getting to in the Lord's Prayer. So, so often that prayer, you know, the only time he was asked, how do you pray? He said, pray this way, and then no one listens to him. And it's, it's hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In the context of that, I have all the freedom in the world. Let me give you an example. Let's say a man is struck with chronic pain. So what does he do? Does he go, it is the will of God? No, that's not Christian. What should he say? Lord, if, if by removing my pain, your name will be hallowed and your kingdom will come and your will be done, then remove my pain. I so wish for it to be removed. But Lord, if through my pain, your name is hallowed, your kingdom come, and your will be done, then leave me here and sustain me. But once you recognize his absolute goodness and his sovereignty over everything, then you really are. The more you grow in Christ, the more you become like a child. And you don't sit there debate back and forth of whether or not he'll be pleased if you tell him how much you're hurting. Lord, I know you're right in all things, but I hurt so bad I can't sleep tonight. And it's that, that type of reciprocal relationship without fear that we need to move in. Theologians, they have to deal with great questions, but in the end, they too have to humble themselves as a child and just be transparent before God within the context of these great truths about his character. Thank you, men.
for these answers. Uh, thank you also all for your questions. They were very good. I apologize that we could not get to each one of them. Um, I think it's appropriate to conclude in prayer. Uh, perhaps, Joel, maybe you want to close in prayer for the night. I don't know if there's further instructions. Chris, I'm not sure. Okay, Anthony, Kim. Let's pray. Father, we do, as we think about these questions and, and about all the questions we didn't get to, sense our need for wisdom. And we are reminded that you are the one who gives wisdom abundantly, liberally, to those who ask. And so we do ask that you would make us wise, make us wise in our sufferings. Make us wise as we try to comfort others with the comfort that we have found in you in the midst of our own sufferings. Help us to be repentant of places where we are causes of suffering. To see those places and to, to turn away from them and to be done with that kind of way. And to live wholly and fully for you. May you be all for us. May you be everything. May you be dearer to us than life itself. I pray that you would keep us. I pray that you would bring us back in the morning. I pray that you would give us two more strong sessions as the sessions have been to this point. We pray that you would bring us again tomorrow to Christ. We ask it to the praise of his glory. Amen.